Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another Trendsetters podcast episode. Today, I'm joined by Brian Carden. Brian is the CMO at Envision. Envision is the platform for inclusive collaboration with digital product design and development. And with more than 7 million people use Envision to empower a repeatable and streamlined design workflow. And that includes tens of thousands of organizations, including 100% of the Fortune 100. Brian has also been named to several lists, including the 50 most influential CMOs on social media, the 100 most influential CMOs in the world, 30 tech marketing leaders changing the industry, and 20 executives shaping the future of marketing. Brian, it is truly an honor and pleasure to have you on today. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, great to be with you. Thank you. So I guess the, the first probably area to start would be on Envision. I'd love to get a sense, what is the purpose of Envision for, for clientele and customers? Um, and I'd love to get a sense of that and, and kind of more information on the, on the brand and the company itself. Yeah, sure. So I've been in Envision about a year and a half. And uh, you know how, uh, particularly with COVID, uh, every company is becoming a digital product company. You know, you don't walk into a bank and use your bank application. You know, whether it's Netflix or Uber or Uber Eats or whatever we're using, all companies are now about digital experiences. So we're a platform that allows companies, whether it's Airbnb or whether it's Google or whether it's Goldman Sachs, to create digital experiences. And so that's what we're all about. And um, as you mentioned, we have 100% of the Fortune 100 but tens of thousands of companies are using us. And we also have, as you said, over 7 million users on our app, which for me is kind of crazy because I've always been like a B2B guy yeah. and to have 7 million people. And so, but we're also a company that doesn't just is in the software business. We also want to educate, inspire, inform our customers uh, in ways. So we have a big push on education, learning, we want people to really use design as a force for good and to create amazing digital experiences. That's incredible. And I think uh, there's always, a, always kind of a duality you face within the B2B realm, which is obviously marketing towards your B2B clientele and those, those Fortune 100, 500 brands, uh, but also your average everyday consumer. And I know you can go sign up on the platform. There's like a free version. There's also like an $8 yeah. a month version. And then obviously there's, there's enterprise. Uh, so that, that obviously makes things difficult, though, from your perspective, because you're not just selling, you know, cans of soda, uh, which is the same price for everyone. And it's going to be the same, you know, purpose and use for everyone. So, so I guess, how do you approach that philosophy and what does it look like internally with, with your team and what you're doing marketing wise uh, to ensure that you're, you're still uh, marketing towards your larger clientele, but, but also reaching your, your average day, average everyday kind of designer and, and, and potential end customer? It's so interesting because I think so many B2B companies are really conservative. They're not bold enough. And let's face it, you know, with our smartphones, there's no difference between a consumer app and a B2B app, but there seems to be a world of difference in the experience. Like we love our consumer apps. They're gamified and they're fun and they're animated. They do great stuff. Then you use some clunky business application and it feels like, you know, it's like we're in the you know, 1980s. It's just, it's slow and it's not fun. And so I think there's a real need to sort of consumify business, business applications because the standards people have now are the standards you get from a Google app, the standard you get from Uber, Airbnb, like things work so well in the consumer world. And so uh, we have two focuses. Uh, one is top of funnel, 
uh, as you might imagine. And Jake, as you know, as a marketer, I can't go you know more than five minutes without mentioning funnel. Of course, it's just part of DNA. So, uh, but we have lots of work to get people to the top of the funnel, and that's much more things: consumer, trends, reports, what's going on, inspiration, designers using different colors, what they're doing, managing their teams. Then we have things that are middle of funnel, BOFU, and things that are bottom of funnel, BOFU, that are much more product related. So we get to run the full gamut and it's just a lot of fun for us. For example, we have a podcast. So uh, we just did the podcast with John Cleese, who is the creator of Monty Python. Mm. And so something like that, why would a B2B marketer do that? Well, John Cleese is all about creativity and collaboration. And so we wanted to bring someone like John Cleese to our audience to talk about how do you collaborate really well? How do you get funny? How do you get really creative? We just did a, uh, a podcast with Brian Chesky, who's the founder and CEO of Airbnb. Yeah. You know, they just went public last month, the greatest IPO in the history of, of software. Pretty amazing. And he has a design background. So he talks about the role of design in Airbnb. And he talks about how little changes in the application of Airbnb had dramatic changes in terms of their profitability, user engagement, session length, and so on. So it's really fun for me as a marketer. I can think about we're a publishing company, we're a media company, but at the same time, we care a lot about pipeline and B2B. So I've got teams that think very holistically, and we call that really life cycle marketing. And the marketing doesn't end when someone signs the contract and they're a customer. We continue post. I think a lot of marketers forget that. Like the relationship doesn't end when you sign the contract. For me, the relationship is just beginning. Mm -hmm. And so for software, retention, love, engagement, product adoption really is, is core to success. I love that. And a lot of what you're doing with uh, Envision and kind of the, the role you serve for clientele of all sorts is certainly of, of the latest and newest kind of technology. And, and it's certainly kind of forward thinking brand and, and, and firm in that sense. Uh, and, and this is kind of brought on by the natural evolution of, of marketing that exists. And obviously, you know, 10, 20 years ago, things looked in, entirely different. And that, that, that will be the case always, right? Uh, but, but obviously, when, when you started out in the marketing realm, that, that's not necessarily what things looked like. And this was a future that, that has since been created. So I'd love to get a sense of, of that evolution from kind of an, uh, a historical standpoint. For, you know, for you, what has that marketing evolution looked like? How have you stayed kind of on top of it? I'd love to just explore that that natural evolution, because I think a lot of our younger listeners sometimes forget the microcosm of, of what we're living in as if like, this is the evolution, right? That, that exists yeah. today. Uh, but this is the, the natural kind of order of, of, of the, of the universe of the world, call it whatever you want. So, so what's your stance on that? I, I think Jake, the biggest transformation is the power has moved from the vendor to the consumer. Mm -hmm. Like 15, 20 years ago, you relied on vendors to tell you about their product. You know, the car salesman knew more about his product than they had on the website. There weren't millions of product reviews out there, restaurant reviews, product reviews. You know, if you're going to buy a Peloton, there are 8 million reviews about Peloton. Like, you don't have yeah. to rely on Peloton to tell you, you know, what's good about it, what's not so good about it. So I think the number one trend is power has gone to the buyer and away. The second big thing that really surprised me is that a lot of people to transact don't want to talk to a human being. Mm -hmm. Like, think about yourself. If you want to do a bank transaction, you use your phone. You don't actually walk into a bank and talk to a human being. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing that with travel. You're a very young guy, you're not old enough to remember, there was a human being called a travel agent. <laughs> it was a person who would tell you about a trip to Hawaii and hotels and everything. But of course, you have, you know, millions of reviews on TripAdvisor and other websites and, and everything. So there's just an abundance of information. 
and uh, you don't really have to talk to a human being. So as a marketer, we're taking a much bigger part of the customer journey. You know, people always talked about discovery is maybe 50% of the buyer's journey, and then they engage with the salesperson. We're now seeing that as more like 80 or 90%. And we're closing amazingly large deals when a buyer has never spoken at all to a human being. Like it used to be 50,000 you can sell, $100,000. Look at Tesla. You know, they're selling $100,000 cars, touchless, completely touchless, no human intervention. Everything is communicated. And so it's happening more and more in different categories. I suspect it's going to happen in real estate too. Mm-hmm. So do you really need a broker to be able to walk you through a house? How about a video tour? Mm-hmm. How about a remote tour? Just a bot can take me through it. Uh, do I really need all these lawyers to process the paperwork? Like, I, I think there are whole categories that are right for transformation, but B2B selling is one of them that it's really changed. So the leads that we pass on to our salespeople are only the, the biggest leads, the biggest sort of opportunities, but we're able to automate a lot of the smaller deals and do it completely without any human intervention. And AI has been a big part of marketing, which was not the case just five years ago. It was sort of a wish, but AI is everywhere in marketing now. Mm-hmm. And uh, this idea of uh, power has moved to the consumer. I think those are the two biggest trends. And also I'm old enough to remember when it was the physical world, not a digital world. And so everything I learned in business school about marketing is pretty much obsolete. None of these technologies existed. And then marketing has just grown so much on the back of technology. You know, we didn't have Marketo, Eloqua, HubSpot, you know, 15 years ago. And uh, there wasn't sort of a technology of record for marketers. And so all that's really changed. And there are new technologies, as you know, coming up all the time. They're really interesting and new and can transform how marketing does its job and improve productivity. Yeah. So you, so you mentioned that evolution and, and, and what you learned and how you've kind of stayed on top since um, and, and had to kind of relearn those, those arenas. And I think what I always find fascinating um, is uh, the, the, the non-human uh, transactions in particular, especially I think that's going to be that's going to continue to be the case in a lot of arenas, um, especially having what is now a generation that is the anti like cell phone generation. Like I'm going to use my cell, I'm going to use my cell phone for everything, but what its actual purpose is, which is calling people. And what I find so 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 comical is you, you'll have Gen Z and, and there's like very hilarious tweets on this of, you know, they'll, they'll go protest and they'll go put their life on the line. They'll get tear gas, you know, by the police over here and they'll go do this crazy stuff and they'll eat nothing all day and they'll work 16 hours. Uh, but then they have to call their doctor. And that is like the scariest thing in the world. You know? <laughs> oh my God. God forbid That's I so have to call, call someone. Right. So I, I always find that fascinating. And, and now when you were, when you were obviously in school at, at certainly a, a prestigious uh, business school, you know, there wasn't, I would, I would presume at least, there's not exactly a roadmap to ultimately becoming a CMO one day. Um, and if there is, that, that roadmap's likely changed. And, and by the time you learn it, probably going to be outdated by the time you can actually apply it. So I know a lot of our listeners here, they, they want to maybe one day become a CMO uh, or whatever that CMO potentially evolves into and iterations of that. Uh, but they don't know exactly where to start, whether it's just start, you know, on the startup side or even less about the career in terms of like the, the linear progressions there, but maybe like those fundamentals that they should learn. So from your perspective, as you think about the next generation of potential CMOs, what do you think those things that the younger individuals should be learning to uh, ultimately potentially become a CMO one day? Great question. I think number one trait that I look for in people that I hire is curiosity. Like people who want to learn, 
Like if you're going to Khan Academy, you're watching YouTube videos. Like I'll talk to candidates and I said, you know, you want to cook a meal. Like, how do you do that? Well, if they look at YouTube and they have downloaded a whole bunch of different menus and apps and they're learning constantly and trying to improve what they're doing. So this idea of curiosity, I think, is an important attribute. The second one is data-driven. I think it was Deming who said, uh, in God we trust, all others bring data. Yeah. <laughs> and so this idea of you have to be data-driven and really be compelled to dig down and, and be data-driven, not just talk about it with arm-waving, but actually be very curious to analyze the data. The third piece to, I think, a great career is you have to build mentors along the way and never burn bridges. And uh, so I have people that have been in my network for 20 years who are friends and Sometimes they're CEOs of companies or they're on boards of directors or they're people who are running marketing teams. And so I stay in touch with everybody. It's all part of the family. I have a group of uh, CMOs and CEOs that I regularly check in on all the time just to see how they're doing, particularly in COVID. Like it's kind of a lonely time. But um, and the thing I do with this group is I, I help them in, in ways. I send them things all the time and I expect nothing in return. Mm-hmm. The thing that always bugs me is someone I haven't spoken to in years suddenly out of the blue asks for uh, a reference or they want me to put something on LinkedIn. They want me to do them a favor. Like, where the hell were you for the last two years? Like, and so I think this idea, like, be generous, help people. Like, there's some very junior people that I met early in my career that needed some help and I mentored them. And now they're CEOs of really big companies and I'm advising them now. I'm on their board of directors or something. So it's just amazing. So I'll give you one example. I was uh, after business school, I, I joined a consulting firm and uh, we were going back to where I went to school, the Wharton School of University of Pennsylvania to hire junior people. And one of the kids I hired right out of school was a kid named Jeff Weiner. And Jeff Weiner ended up being CEO of LinkedIn. And so it's someone who for 30 years, he's been in my orbit. And, uh, you know, we don't talk all the time, but it's kind of nice. You just never know. And so uh, there are lots and lots of people like that where you just never know where things are going to go. So don't shut off relationships, keep them going. Uh, And then the last piece I would say is to geek out. Like there are basically two tracks in marketing that sometimes people talk to. There's the creative side. Here are the writers, the dreamers. And then you have people that are sort of in conversions and they're into the, the technology. And even if you're a dreamer and a writer and you're great at design and, and that sort of stuff, everybody has to geek out. And so even as a CMO, I roll up my sleeves. I have, I'm in all the applications. I'm looking at the dashboards. I'm trying to understand how everything works. And there's no substitute for being a doer. So I think all marketers have to be doers and not just managers. Yeah, I think that practitionership is, is something that has to be at, at, at the core um, and, and that's something that should be developed at, at, at the youngest age possible, because then you're also learning about all those different kind of areas of expertise. So if you have to you know, launch a campaign in that arena, even if you're not the one spearheading it, you, you at least have enough knowledge um, to know what's right or what's wrong. And, and, and that's something I find in particular. So, so something we didn't mention was maybe some of those hard skill sets. And I think, uh, you know, as you talked about the marketing evolution and where things are headed, the, the desire and the need for understanding at least digital product design and building at customer experiences. It's just kind of the fabric of a culture of purchasing. And I think that's going to continue to be the case. So I guess from your perspective, do, do you find it vital for CMOs or founders of the future to understand digital product design and digital experiences? And, and at least, I, I guess, if so, then how can they best maybe learn enough in that expertise to at least be like dangerous enough to, to, to ultimately know what's going on? It's a great question. You have to really be vulnerable. And so sitting down with your chief digital officer or people designing the apps, 
you ought to actually admit. I think Brene Brown talks about this idea of vulnerability and admitting you don't know something. I think some CEOs are sort of old school and saying, oh, I'm in charge. I know what's going on. They're really about control. Mm -hmm. And I think you open up yourself to possibility when you say, you know, I can't know everything and uh, teach me, show me how that works. And that really builds relationship that's, uh, you know, so strong. And so I would encourage CMOs and CEOs and people to just say, I know about a lot of things in marketing, but there's some areas of product design or how do you build an app or what's the platform or should I be using Java? Should I be using Ruby? Like, what does that mean? Uh, How can I get better at these things? I had a, a case where a young man in his 20s uh, had to learn, you know, some areas of technology he didn't know. And so he asked his network and they referred him to uh, somebody else in another company. And he called that woman there and that woman ended up hiring him a few months later. Yeah. And I asked this kid, why did she hire you? She said she really liked the fact that I was curious and I was reaching out to learn on my own. Like I really had this thing I was trying to solve in SQL and how it interacts with Snowflake, which is this big data platform. And the company didn't have resources, so he reached outside his company. And she loved the fact that he was so entrepreneurial and he was so curious that he didn't let that be a barrier. Like he he would find any expert in the world to help him. And so that's what he did. And they've ended up uh, hiring him. I love that story. Yeah, I think it's that curiosity that that sits at the core of what it takes to ultimately be kind of a great marketer and that, and that ultimately fuels your learnings and knowledge. So something that I, that I always find captivating with a younger audience, and I know something that, you know, there's not a lot that keeps me up at night, but, but one of those things every once in a while that'll keep me up at night is the, this understanding that, you know, our company, we, we call ourselves Trendsetters Media. We're always thinking about the future and Gen Z and all those other things. But, I, but I'm very cognizant of the fact that there's, there's a 13-year-old right now somewhere in the world that is learning everything we're doing. And by the time, you know, he's, <laughs> by, you know, in eight years when he's my age, he's going to know so much more and far better. And then, you know, by the time I'm, I'm 30 or 40 or whatever you call it, I'm now going to be the obsolete guy. And the irony of the fact that I, my company was built on this. And, and so I'm always thinking about, okay, how do I ensure I'm always on the top? I want to know more than the next generation. I don't, I, I'm not going to use it as an excuse that, that I'm potentially older to not understand it. So I guess, how have you been able to maintain and stay on top of all the digital trends always? Because I think, uh, I think there's this notion that, you know, within our generation, because we know it, or rather because we're inside of it, oh, well, I know everything about TikTok. Those CMOs nowadays know nothing, and, and, and I do today, so I'm always going to be ahead of the curve. That's simply just not the case, and it's just the natural yeah. effect right now. But for, from your perspective, how have you always kind of stayed on top of the latest trends, the latest information, the, the latest kind of knowledge uh, graphs, whatever you want to call it. Let me answer that. But you yeah. also stimulated sort of a thought in my mind. Yeah. And uh, I hadn't thought about this until the last couple of months. Do we actually need a college education anymore? And I was talking to a friend of mine who is on the faculty at Stanford, and they're finding that some of their best students start freshman year or sophomore year, and they're picked away because they've learned how to code and they think they can learn more by joining Google or Facebook or you know some other company or Microsoft. There is also, I have a friend who's the dean of the Berkeley College of Music, which is a great music school. And uh, I was talking to her and I said, boy, I guess when your students graduate, they get great jobs with bands and everything. And she smiled and she said, the best students never graduate. They're picked off freshman year by a band. So Pat Metheny or Elton John rolls into Boston and, and meet some of these freshmen who are amazing bass players, keyboard players, saxophone players, and they pick them off. So I said, when people graduate Berkeley College of Music, what do they do? I said, they become teachers <laughs> because 
it's amazing. Yeah. So there's a very interesting trend going on about education really matters, knowledge matters, but you have to get that in a classroom or can you get that through, as we talked about Khan Academy, YouTube, learning from mentors, just learning on your own. It's a very interesting question. And, and particularly it's been accelerated by COVID because you know, the thing you're missing, of course, is the in-person emotional intelligence part. You know, you got a roommate, you got a, you got fraternities, you meet girls and boys, and you sort of develop as a human being. But you're not getting that now because a lot of campuses aren't meeting. So I think it's really a good question about is a four-year college the best way to become educated? You know, I'm looking at your books on your shelf right now, and oh, yeah. you're obviously doing a lot of reading and everything. Like, way too I'm just much. not sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but let me get to your second question about um, how to stay on top of things. And I have a group of CMOs that I talk to pretty regularly, and I always ask them the same kind of questions, like, what, what are you using that's new? What's cool? What are you hearing? Because by the time something makes it mainstream, it's like you've lost your competitive advantage. So very often they found like an algorithm or a new technology that they're testing. That's the way I find out sort of what's hot and what's new. I have a sort of my own board of directors, which are CMOs of really cool companies in different spaces. And we talk pretty regularly and it feels like drug dealers like, hey, check it out. I got this new app I'm using yeah. or, hey, I, I built this new AI, you know, uh, this machine learning algorithm that's really doing great. So that's the way I, I keep up with things. Obviously, I read a ton of stuff, but it's um, it can be very inundating to get all these feeds from TechCrunch and Business Insider and, you know, how many newsletters and how many things can you keep up with? And so I mostly rely on human beings. The other thing I do is I'm starting to read more fiction. I know it sounds crazy, but um, I want to get my head into another space and sometimes get out of business. And I find it uh, sort of mind opening to let my brain rest a little bit to get into another world. So I, one of my New Year's resolutions is to read more fiction. And I'm finding it already. We're just a week into the new year, a couple weeks into the new year. And uh, I'm really enjoying getting outside my world and finding new characters and new ways of thinking. And I find that when I come back to work, I'm a lot fresher. I've really, you know, I feel renewed, just like you would after a workout or a run or playing some music. Yeah. I mean, what I find post so uh, fascinating within the fiction space is, is, you know, and I'm more of a nonfiction guy because I always have trouble because I'm like, I need application for this stuff right away. Uh, but, but, then, but then you look into like Aldous Huxley and, and Brave New yeah. World and others of that nature. And it's like, wow, there's so much telling within fiction stories that don't exist. And I see it very similar to, to music of this is ultimately a story that's created as but, but it ultimately stems from I mean, it's, at the end of the day, it's still created by humans. Uh, one day we will get to the point where AI is mainly creating music. That'll get a little bit scary. Kind of is, but but uh, but it's still created by humans as iterations of culture, and so it can almost map and predict to to what that looks like. And there's so many correlations between the two. And because it exists in this world that you can't feel or see, it's almost like it, you can better understand some of the concepts and principles for that. Uh, so so I find the fiction fiction one fascinating. Are there any ones? right now in the fiction space that, that you're exploring, ha maybe have on your list. Um, I well, it's interesting about fiction, because what you said really is interesting, because I think also as a, mar I was thinking, why am I drawn to fiction? Let's mm -hmm. face it, marketers are storytellers. Mm -hmm. You have to be great storytellers. Like who are the characters? Who are the protagonists? What are the challenges they face? How do they overcome the obstacles? Who's courageous? Who's a coward? Like, it's so interesting. Like, how do you tell your brand story, your company story? And when you read these great writers, uh, I mostly read American writers, but it's just, uh, I just love, you know, so I'm trying to read, you know, more Hemingway and Steinbeck and sort of classic American writers, Philip Roth, I'm reading a lot of, 
uh, I also love very sad books that are very emotional because I just love to sort of crawl up and ask myself some questions about overcoming obstacles and challenges in one's life. And, you know, and so um, those are some of the things I'm reading. But I do think, as you talked about reading novels and talked about Huxley and Brave New World, I was thinking about storytelling as sort of core to what marketers do. Maybe that's why I'm drawn more to fiction these days. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. And, and something that you mentioned as a precursor to that uh, was the education question, which I think that's top of mind for a lot of younger individuals. I know that's a decision I made for myself. I spent a year at university, business opportunity came up, started the company and haven't really looked back since. And Well, and, look at you, Jake. Look yeah, at you. Well, and, what, and what's fascinating now is we now have a team of, of 23, all Gen Z individuals. I think our oldest is 26 and youngest, you know, I think 19 right now. And uh, I think we have one degree across the board. Um, and that individual actually didn't graduate college in the United States. It was actually in, in, in the Philippines. So it's, yeah. it's incredible to see kind of that evolution. But I also get a sense that it, it, it really does depend on that individual because I think some potentially use college as the cover for their own lack maybe of curiosity or education. And yeah. so that's kind of your, your baseline. But like you said, the individuals that, that perform the best, they're going to find that way to get out. So I guess for, for, from your perspective, how, how do you see education potentially evolving? And I'll also note that I think that's a question that none of us are going to be able to answer right away. I think it's something that, that and Scott Galloway has talked about this in, in his latest post-corona um, and some of his past books. But I think, uh, I think it's a question that is, is really intriguing, not just from the perspective of who the next generation of students are going to be, but who are the next generation leaders? Because how they learn and what they learn is going to determine so much of our future of corporations, companies, and more. Uh, so, so what's your, I mean, what do you think the future of education potentially looks like? It's uh, lots of different paths. I think we had a tried and true path. You work really hard at school, you get into a good college, maybe go to graduate school, you get recruited by a fancy company that only hires from certain business schools to certain colleges. I think that's going away. You know, Google, you can work at Google without a college degree. In fact, they believe that there's some disincentive that some people go to college, limit their thinking. Uh, same thing with Facebook. So a lot of premier companies are now hiring people regardless. It's not where you went to school, your pedigree. It's what can you do for me? What have you learned? What can you do? And so in a lot of these cases, you know, I think your company is a good example. You know, the people that you brought on board and your colleagues and everything, you've got one college degree in the midst. Everybody seems to be doing just fine. So it's a big transformation. I think the other question that's certainly been teased out by COVID, but it existed before, is what is a college campus? Like, is it a physical place or is it a virtual place? And is that going away? Do you have to physically walk and be in a classroom to learn? Or can you do it virtually, you know, on, on different platforms? And uh, I think we're finding that you may not have to have a physical campus anymore. And so I'm in Boston and we've got Harvard and MIT and, and Tufts and other schools here. And they're thinking very hard about satellite campuses, you know, in China, in the Bay Area, but they're also thinking about non-campuses. And most schools have a growing online business. And in fact, colleges are closing down like crazy. You know, every year they close more and more colleges because fewer people are applying. They don't see the value in a physical campus. Yet we see online registrations going up pretty dramatically. Look at Masterclass, look at Pluralsight, look at Khan Academy. There's just so many places you can learn things. And it's not necessarily by paying, you know, a quarter of a million dollars to go to a, a four-year college. Yeah. LinkedIn learning, I know for me in particular, yes. by LinkedIn. I mean, that that has been my uh, 
my quote unquote MBA. We also previously at, at the last firm I with, we partnered with another agency. We actually hired an MBA uh, from who, who was with uh, an executive at Sprint Verizon. So it's been interesting to see, you know, and that's always something at the forefront of my mind is how do I cultivate education without a clear structure for doing so? Because it makes it a little bit more difficult, but I think there is a natural fluidity of education and understanding that education, it does not just exist within, a, you know, that, that kind of four or six year window. It's something that, that needs to be uh, driven out day by day. And I also think there's potential uh, for, you know, those alternative paths. It's, it requires you to be in the, the driver's seat of your education. And when yeah. you're in the driver's seat, then you learn ultimately, how, okay, how do I best learn? What are the best resources for me in terms of learning? How do I best process information? And I, I think that, you know, we just learn so differently in an individual level. So it'll be interesting, interesting to see the, the evolution of that. And kind of the final question I have for you as, as kind of a fun topic is uh, I noticed on your LinkedIn, a level two intermediate diploma in wine and spirit and spirit. So uh, are there any, you know, do you have any foresight into what the future of, you know, the wine and spirits industry looks like, or, or are there any recommendations maybe for our audience? Because I know a lot of our audience right now in that Gen Z demo is your uh, kind of early stage drinkers. So wasting their money on maybe a $10, 30 rack of Natty Light, or uh, I always see all, all, all the girls that buy the $7 barefoot wine, which is pretty much just like sugar, it, it seems like. Uh, but but in, any, uh, any insight or ideas or recommendations in, in that category? Well, the first thing you should know is my daughter is a sommelier. So she went to college studying one thing. And then in college, she was hostessing at a restaurant and she got to know more about wine. And so she studied and learned and got certified and she's a sommelier at a Michelin star restaurant. She has been for a while. Um, and so she's the one who got me into it. I felt as a parent, I should try to keep up with my daughter to have a conversation about grapes and varietals and terroir and, and all those sorts of things. Um, you know, they've done all these blind tastings and um, they've concluded that price is not an indicator of quality in all cases. And I think there's sort of this myth of this fancy French wine and it's really about supply and demand. And so you got to really decide what you like to drink and not be, you know, drawn in by the fancy names and everything. I would also, what's so interesting is global warming is having an effect on wine growing. You know, some areas are getting too hot to grow grapes right now. And some areas that were too cold before to grow grapes, like Eastern Europe, are now warming up. And so regions have sort of opened up. So the wine growing areas have changed. The second part is that um, there's lots of great new world uh, places to get wine. You don't have to go to France and Italy. You can get them from South America, obviously, you know, Argentina and Malbec area. You can think about New Zealand and Australia. You can think about all sorts of interesting places that are not sort of new world, uh, no old world, but very new world. So there are tons of great YouTube videos on wine for beginners and how to think about it and everything. I think it's kind of a fun thing to think about. Wine is also, it connects so many things. It connects culture. It connects hospitality. It connects farming. Basically, it's about farming. How do you grow yeah. grapes and harvest it and everything? It's about the marketing of wine. I just find it a fascinating field that cuts across so many different things. But for your friends who are drinking different kinds of wine, if they find something they really like, enjoy it. I would encourage experimentation. I think people try to play it safe, like something they've had forever. They want to keep having it again and again. It's only a couple of bucks. Like, what's yeah. the heck? What the heck? Try something new. 
Ask your friends for recommendations. Watch a few. It's this idea we talked about at the beginning. Curiosity. Be curious. And I find people that if they like something, they stay with it for 10 years. Like, are you kidding me? Like, things are evolving so quickly, you can find something new. So, uh, yeah, I'm very interested in wine and increasingly spirits. And, you know, <laughs> wine and spirits consumption is up dramatically because of COVID. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's up almost. Uh, are you speaking from first-hand experience, Jake? Oh, no, I, I, I wouldn't say so. What's funny, I turned, uh, I turned 21 during COVID. Uh, so I had my, my 21st birthday as uh, pretty much just like very close friends and family. Uh, so didn't get to experience it since and haven't been able to, to go as, as much as I'd like to being, being 21 years old. There's just not a lot of arenas to go to, but I've certainly seen within friends and communities and especially my college friends uh, an uptick in, in the drinking category. Yeah, it's definitely happened here. <laughs> so yeah. well, it's booming. Brian, it was truly a pleasure having you on. I, I really love this episode and all the exploration that, that we dove into. And for all of our listeners right now, thank you for listening. And be sure to let me know any questions you have on any of the many social media platforms that we're on. And I will see you all next week.